So Parth, tell me about your recent diet. Well, I have just had some grilled chicken my father made. Just grilled chicken? Just like a plate with a grilled chicken on it and no sides? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, Parth, no offense, it sounds like a bland meal. It was actually quite good. Actually, that's you... not true. We had we had grilled onions. Oh, but these are just an afterthought? Everything's grilled in the Marate household, sensing a pattern. Was this a whole family affair? Was the whole Marate clan came out for, for this function? They did. We we grilled in my backyard. Now that the weather's all nice, we've been we've been using that grill a bit. Because you, because uh, you're white people and you live in suburbia and you're just fulfilling the American dream. Is that all? Is that all right? That's me, Parth Marate, Caucasian male. Yeah. What about you, Trent? What have you been eating? Um, I just. My mother prepared me a sloppy Joe sandwich. Um, <laughs> there was corn on the side. Um, I was thinking about this. Reminded me of when I saw the Harlem Globetrotters as a child, and one of the players was named Sloppy Joe. And there's another one named Special K. And mm. my dad, uh, at his work, says that all of his coworkers call him Special K because his name is Kurt. Um, but it's, you know, humorous because it's insinuating that he has some sort of mental handicap. So kind of an insensitive joke, if you ask me. That's kind of messed up. Have you ever seen the Harlem Globetrotters? I have not. Have you ever seen any professional basketball? Occasionally when March Madness is on or happening. Oh, you do you care about that, or are you just saying like you and college basketball cross paths and it's fine? Yeah, I'm I'm not a big, um, in general, I'm not a big sports guy, but say la vie. What what if any? What sport tickles your fancy the most? Well, I wouldn't say any. Gun to gun to your head, Parth. Well, I'd like it if you didn't threaten me, but um, I guess you have to do what you have to do. But um, I guess I don't know. Parth, Parth, theoretically, if me and you were to go on a uh, cool night out on the town and it included a live sporting event, where are we going? Strictly theoretical. Football, I guess. I've never or been baseball. to a football game. This... Well, I've, I've been to like I've been to our college football game, the homecoming oh, go, one. Go Scarlet Knights. Yes. Wait, Parth, do you often go to the college football games if so i don't recognize you no i've i've been to two how were they i've never been i i went to the first one and it was a lot of fun i is it just because you have so much school spirit and like pep i love rutgers so much that i'm willing to pay full tuition for an online education do you think that sort of endorsement will get you a scholarship I certainly hope so. I'm shilling out for them. Do you think John Rutgers, CEO of Rutgers, is listening right now? If so, I'm sure he's thrilled by this free advertising. He has emailed me about how much he is a fan of craft services. He was like, hey, Parth, uh, if you just wouldn't mind, uh, I'll give you a large discount on your tuition if you just, uh, just name drop us. Mm-hmm. Because Rutgers, they have a shortage of students. They're trying to... You know, trying to cut corners. Exactly. Yeah, they're a small business like anyone else. Mm -hmm. They 
they need to expand in this capitalistic world of ours. So, Parth, uh, communism, your thoughts on it? Pro? Anti? Mao has some ideas. Well, Parth, I don't like you, uh, endorsing your, uh, your, your leftist liberal, uh, agenda here on this, uh, n- non-political podcast, so if you could just leave that at the door, it'd be great. Um, I have always maintained that craft services should be apolitical. I do apologize. Parth, enough with the uh, the small talk, the pleasantries. We've let's get that. We've gotten that out of the way. Let's uh, let's cut to the substance, the the meat and potatoes. Let's give the audience what they paid for. Let's uh, let's let's cue the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about movies. Each week we discuss a different film and have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week we're going to be talking about Sorry to Bother You, and with us we have its cinematographer, Doug Emmett. It's a big episode, everyone. Strap on your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Trent, we have a new format, do we not? Yeah, Parth, let's talk about uh, the new format. The The listeners are dying for info on our structure. Well, Trent and I are going to be parting our ways fairly soon. I will be continuing my college education, and Trent is going to be leaving me for Vermont? Yeah, I'm uneducated, and I'm going to teach the children of the world how to ski. In, um, in in the Northeast, so this is we'll not see. a joke. Yeah, guys, this isn't a comedy podcast. It's a it's a documentary podcast, so uh, it's, it's nonfiction. But anyways, to account for the amount of time we will not have, uh, we've decided to break apart our episodes into two parts. We will release our interviews in one on one week, and then the next week we will release our discussion so that you have an episode every week and you still get the same amount of information. Also, this makes the episodes more digestible because seeing a 90-minute to two-hour podcast is pretty intimidating. It is quite unwieldy. Yeah, no one wants to undertake that cumbersome project of listening to us for two hours straight. So instead, we're breaking it into two one-hour sessions. Because we're giving the people what they want. Mm-hmm. The fans have spoken, and we've, we've responded. Even though this wasn't, uh, this wasn't due to any social backlash. It's, it was a decision for our own convenience. So it's really had nothing to do with you, you selfish, selfish, selfish listeners at home. Speaking of our selfish listeners, should we tell them what the synopsis of our film today is? Yeah, they're probably just begging to find out, like the basic plotline of the movie. Classic. Want to tell them? Cla- classic viewers. Yeah, let me tell them. In an alternate present-day version of Oakland, telemarketer Cassius Green discovers a magical key to professional success, propelling him into a universe of greed. Whew. But this movie, uh, a bunch more happens also. 
not mentioned here. It's a very concise um, retelling of the story. Parth, did this movie cost any money, or was it, did they make it for free? Or they actually made it for three point two million dollars. You want to guess how much money it made? Um, eighteen point three. Yeah, eighteen point three million dollars. Does that sound about right? That was actually perfectly correct. That was exactly yeah. what it was. I've got like a six cents for this sort of thing. It's like, uh, yeah, my my, uh, my loins start to quake whenever uh, I know the box office earnings for any given film. Anyways, you want to give the production history, Trent? Yes. Uh, Boots Riley describes the film as an absurdist dark comedy with a- aspects of magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. The screenplay for Sorry to Bother You was inspired by his own time working as a telemarketer and telefundraiser in California and his need to put on a different voice in order to find success. Riley finished his screenplay in 2012 and with no means to produce it, recorded an album of the same title with his band The Coop, inspired by the story. The screenplay was originally published in full as part of McSweeney's issue 48 in 2014. In June 2017, it was announced that production would go forward on Sorry to Bother You, directed by Riley, and that Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, and Steven Yeun had been cast in the film. Trent, can I, can I ask you something? This sounds eerily similar to the Wikipedia entry of Sorry to Bother You's production history. See, Parth, I'm... Frankly, I'm offended that you would accuse me of plagiarism. Um, the production value of Craft Services research team is actually uh, it's very deep. They're well-funded. Um, we spare no expense, and all of this content is original, and we don't have to cite our sources because uh, we just made it with our brains and our... We are our own sources. Yeah, so other people cite us. It's true. So, so really, if Wikipedia, if you have that in your entry log or whatever, we'd like some cash. Yeah, I think we should sue Wikipedia. Well, in June 2017, production went forward on Sorry to Bother You, um, and it had a cast including Lakeith Steinfeld, um, or Stanfield. Ugh, I'm so sorry. Tessa Thompson, already. Stephen Yoon. Well, they want to hear it again. Nina Yang, Bon Jovi, Forrest Whitaker, Jonathan Duffy, Kelly Williams, Charles D. King, George Rush all served as producers on this movie. Um, and in it, it got released in 2018. And principal photography took place in Oakland, California, the setting of the film. So was Patton Oswald the uh, Lakeith Sandfield's white voice? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Got it. And David Cross was someone else's white voice, right? I'm, I think so. I but sure. I, why I, not? I I just know that both those white dudes aren't in the movie, so that, yeah. I would imagine they're credited audio-wise. Yes. Did you know it was rumored that Steve Buscemi performed Danny Glover's? white voice but uh boots riley the director actually uh confirmed that it was the film sound engineer so 
I did Unless, that. yeah, as far as I know, Steve Buscemi wasn't the film sound engineer. That's whack. Trent, do you did we get anybody to talk about this movie? Yeah, actually, we um we conducted an interview with uh you know just the cinematographer Doug Emmett. The cinematographer? That's like the second most important person behind the camera. How did we pull that off? I know. We're just uh, two small-town boys who started a podcast, and look at us now. We were growing up on a farm. We showed all the haters, Parth. They thought they could keep us down, but we have overcome the adversity, and now we're talking to motherfucking Doug Emmett. All right. So we talked with him. It's, It's about a half hour long. We hope you enjoy it. It's a hoot and a half, guys. Stay tuned. He was super great. Have some fun. Hello, everybody. We're here with Doug Emmett. He's the superbly talented cinematographer behind such films as Paranormal Activity 4, The Edge of 17, and our film for today, Sorry to Bother You. We're incredibly excited to be talking with him, so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, so we like to start our interviews off by just asking uh, what got you interested in the film industry and how how did you find your way in? Yeah, I was really into photography as a kid, and um, I think it just evolved from there. So I, I was 14 when I realized that I really wanted to be a filmmaker, and I started taking summer classes at um, Boston University. I grew up outside of Boston, and from there I was really hooked. So I was doing it in high school, making a TV show in high school. And then um, from there, I studied film undergrad at NYU and thought that I wanted to be a director. And then uh, realized that there was a lot of competition to be a director at school. And some of those kids had mohawks and leather jackets and tattoos. And uh, I was wearing cargo pants and ill-fitting shirts from The Gap. And I was just like, I don't know that I can compete with these cool kids living in the East Village. But um, there seemed to be a need for cinematographers, so I did that. And uh, I studied mostly cinematography through NYU and then uh, started working in short film, like shorts and uh, commercials and music videos. And um, in my mid-20s, I shot my first feature. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of like the rundown. And what was your first feature? The tiny movie that we shot in Woodstock. Um, it's called Fighting Fish. And um, there's a very talented DP that you guys should probably interview at some point, a guy named Jody Lee Leips, who just shot the new uh, Mark Ruffalo HBO show. Um, and he did, uh, what else? I mean, he's done a lot of movies and a lot of great, beautiful TV work. So you know, he was asked to do, the, to do the film, and I was a year below him at NYU, and he wasn't able to commit to it. And uh, I was like, I think 23. And he suggested me. And so uh, that was that. So I ended up doing this project. And I don't know that many people saw it, but um, it led to more movies, which was cool, which is like kind of the advice that I always give to uh, younger generations of filmmakers, which is that you should just always shoot and don't ever stop shooting because you just never know what kind of connections you're going to make. And um, the producers from that film had a, a buddy that they were producing for making a movie right after we wrapped and, and his DP had fallen out and fallen through. And so they say, well, Hey, Doug was good on this last project and it's a similar size budget. I think we made it for like 150,000. Right. 
And, uh, and it was shooting in New York and Manhattan. And so that was cool. So they kind of like, I slid right into another feature right after that. I mean, I'm talking like weeks after. So at 23, you got to shoot two features. And, um, and from there, that was really helpful because like, it's hard to get your first feature. And once you've gotten your first feature shot, then it's a whole lot easier to get hired for your second and your third. So, um, yeah. Uh, a little bit of a pivot. So how did you get involved with our chosen film? Sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Uh, the, the way I got involved is a good story. Uh, I was shoot, I was supposed to be shooting a movie in New York. So I was, um, this is 2017, May of 2008, April, May of 2017. I'm supposed to be shooting in New York. I had been prepping for about three or four weeks. I was staying in the Lower East Side in a nice hotel. I was being taken care of. I was making good money. And I was like, hey, this is going really, really well. I think it was like a, a decent sized movie for Netflix. And then um, our actor dropped out. And then um, that was it. We were like two and a half weeks out from shooting. And she just, I think what happened, they had recast one of the other cast members and she wasn't cool with it. And I think she just thought that there were probably better projects out there for her. So she left. She's like, a, she was like a, a big name. And I don't want to say it, but like it was uh, enough that the movie had to wrap up. And I went home back to LA with no movies lined up for the summer and that was depressing because generally if you're going to work over the you know the next the months of like june july august you would have been interviewing in april or may for that job and um so now i was like facing a few months without work and i was like a little nervous and upset and i called my agent and uh, uh his name is matt and he matt works at uta and i always like to give them a shout out because uta is a really great agency and they've been really helpful for my career and so Matt said, Hey, listen, Doug, I've, you know, funny, you should ask, uh, because I was like, Hey Matt, I need a movie. Like, what do you got? And he goes, well, you know, there aren't a lot of options, but I've got this one small little indie feature and, um, you know, it's, it's only a $2 million budget and it's, uh, he pitched it to me. And if you've seen the movie, sorry to bother you, then you know that that's probably a really insane, hard pitch, uh, especially to do in like a few sentences. And, and I was like a little bit like, Oh, I, uh, okay, I don't really know if that's up my alley or not, but it sounds cool. Um, and, uh, and it's a first time director. And I was like, Oh, man, all right, well, I've, I've worked with a few first time directors, I've worked on $2 million movies, I was, you know, just had been working on like a $20 million movie. So that was kind of tough, you know, and I was like, all right, well, I don't know anything about this guy boots. And I don't know anything about the film. So I asked my wife to start reading the script. And, uh, and she was like 20 pages in, and she was just like, you got to get in here. You got to read this thing. And so we start reading it together and it was really a fun experience of like kind of going back and forth being like, are you, what page you on? Oh, I'm, I'm on this page. Oh, well, have you like, have you, have they had the horse scene yet? And you're like the horse scene, what, what horse scene? And you're like, all right, well just wait. And it was like very obvious by the time I was done reading the script that that had been like, it was like the best script I'd ever read. And it was so out there and unique and cool um, that I got on a plane like later that evening um, and flew up to Oakland to meet with Boots. Boots lives in Oakland. And um, and then I think that like maybe that was like over a weekend. So I had gone from, you know, on a Monday shooting a movie in New York to like that Sunday now shooting a movie in Oakland. And um, it's it's amazing because I, I truly feel like that movie um, has changed my career. And, and um, but I also think it's starting to slowly define my style or define like what I want to really be as a cinematographer or like or the type of photography I want to start leaning into. Like I like shooting all types of um, films, uh, genres, but there's something so 
creatively freeing about working with boots and um, exploring that side of uh, our creativity that was exciting for me that I don't normally get to do. So, um, so yeah, so I, I do feel like it'll like, change my life a little bit. And, and so you never know, you just never know. Um, so yeah, man, that's the story. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great movie. If you like working all sorts of genres, it's kind of genreless in a, yeah. in, and has all the genres in it. Um, but sort of, uh, since we were talking about Boots Riley, um, what was your, uh, relationship with him like? Cause that's a very visually specific and intense movie. So we, we were wondering what the relationship between the cinematographer and director would be in that. What's great about Boots is that he'd been a musician for many years. And so he was used to collaborating with other musicians and artists. So he comes from, um, a place of of like knowing that this, that this art form of filmmaking is, is collaborative and that it's not just one person. Right. So he was really open to um, like hearing my ideas and my input, but he also came super prepared. I mean, he came with a lot of references. He came with a lot of concepts and, and ideas for the film. Um, but it, it just, he created an environment where we all felt like we, as in me, the, the costume designer, the production designer, um, he just made it so that we all felt very comfortable sharing ideas and um, that was cool. So he was really open to that. He's um, he's really versed in like the, the world of cinema. So he knows all sorts of um, directors and films that I didn't even, I hadn't even heard of. And so that was kind of cool. So it was a little bit of like a film school education for me working with Boots. And then when we got to set, um, he had, he had, Boots had been on set for music videos and he had directed one or two and he'd gone to film school, but um, largely I think the set experience was, was kind of new for Boots. And so that was nice as well, where like he and I worked really well together um, on set. And I think that there was a lot of mutual trust. Like not only does the director have to trust their DP to be able to like, you know, light it and, and frame it up and do it in like a timely manner um, and make sure that, you know, all the equipment is there and the crew is there and whatever, but like, the DP needs to really needs to really trust their director, right? So if like Boots is Boots is the kind of guy who's going to ask for some wild stuff and, um, and 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 approach scenes and photography in a way that I'm not used to necessarily always approaching it, which is cool because it challenged me and it asked me to kind of like think outside of my narrow box or my narrow perspective of like how you do things. And so that was a really like liberating experience, and um, I learned a lot about myself in that experience, and I, and I definitely grew as a filmmaker. So like, um, you know, not only did we make an, a good movie and, and shoot some nice looking things and, and have a good time doing it, but but truly, I felt like I, I grew uh, leaps and bounds on that project, and and now um, I have a lot more confidence, and I um, I find that I'm I'm much more willing to explore and be loose and um, here's ideas from directors and, and normally you might, you know, react away, um, say like Boots is asking for something that, um, you, you might think is impossible to pull off or, uh, will be way too challenging to pull off on a small budget that we had, um, or the time that we had, we had 26 days to shoot the movie. We had a $2 million budget. So like, um, normally you might just say, Oh, Hey, no, man, like, sorry, that's not possible. But there was this thing about Boots that was like so inspiring that you just always, you never wanted to let him down. You always wanted to try and achieve his vision. And um, so I found myself really leaning into that. And uh, that was cool. And, and I think I learned now as a, as a DP and a, a collaborator to 
to just always try and keep an open mind. And I, and I think maybe that's something like if I can impart that on anyone who's listening today that like, um, you know, there's like, you might think there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, but if you're willing to let yourself be challenged and, and keep an open mind, you, you, you'll be surprised that you can, you can accomplish something like far greater than you thought was ever possible to begin with. So that, that was really gratifying. Yeah. Uh, just since we're talking about the film's uh, fluid genre, uh, one of our professors had a question for you, uh, Adam Volrich, uh, how you created a visual la- language and how you went about choosing lenses uh, for the cinematography on this film. Cool. Hi, Adam. Nice question. Uh, we we decided on anamorphic as our lens format because we, we thought that in, in their specific type of uh, lenses that we used called... Um, they're the cook lenses and they distort the edges of frame and lines and, and the lines and frames. So they cause things to bow and to warp a little bit. So we thought that was um, a nice kind of visual representation of um, the world that Cassius lives in. Um, things are like a little bit distorted. Right. So, so that was, that was kind of cool. We also just liked how cinematic the aspect ratio and the anamorphic felt. Um, but, but then we we decided that the photography shouldn't be like overly wacky or overly aggressive with the framing and the lens choices because uh, we we didn't feel like that was necessary. Like the film itself is already pretty out there, so we didn't need to, uh, you know, I, I don't artificially add. Yeah, yeah, gilding the lily is not the right word, but like turn, but like we didn't need to. Yeah, artificially push it. We were going to do that with some of the color and the lighting choices we made, but we, uh, we thought that the, the framing could be somewhat more traditional. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's what we ended up doing. I think that it looks, I think it could have been crazier and I'm glad that we didn't push it that extra amount. It, it kind of helps you believe in the world. A bit I was more. just going to say it's a good juxtaposition because like the first half compared to the second half is like enough of like a radical shift. Yeah. And the, the film itself shifts around a lot. So there's something nice about the, co- the consistency of the photography. Um, so that, that was kind of nice for us. The other thing was like in terms of the visual language, like we, we used Oakland as an inspiration in terms of color a lot of the time in terms of wardrobe and, and how we lit the spaces and, and what colors we chose to paint the sets. So uh, it, you know, there were many days where he boots and I would be out scouting and, and you'd look at all the phenomenal artwork on, in the streets of Oakland and you walk into these bars and restaurants or people's homes and lamps would have had their bulbs changed out to, you know, unique, weird colors and, um, just lighting that you would never really expect to find in people's homes. Um, and, and so that was really, really cool. So we used that, we incorporated that a lot into the, like, our, the inspiration for the look of the movie. Um, so you mentioned before that the budget for this was a very modest $2 million, um, which is shocking considering how great it looks. Um, uh, but so we were wondering how, uh, budget affects your photography and just sort of as a two-parter, um, we read that after the premiere at Sundance, there was additional funding to do some reshoots. Um, and if you could speak on to what that ended up being. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that part uh, first. The additional funding was came from the, uh, the distributor, Annapurna. And um, there were some things in the riot scene that Boots wasn't able to pull off because we didn't have the time or the money to do it. So there's a uh, there's two things. There's the ending changed a little bit at the very end. 
of the movie. Um, we shot one of the Equusapiens kicking down the door um, in the mansion, in uh, Steve Lift's mansion. That wasn't in the movie initially. It just ended, the, the film ended with uh, Cassius at the gates trying to get into the house. And then it ended on a close-up of Steve Lift's face. Um, but at the very end, we added a, a, the a Cassius kicking down the door. That was added. The other thing that was added was um, there was like a, a truck in the riot scene where there's like a police SWAT team van truck that arrives. And then the Equusapiens push it back out of frame and they like pull the driver out and they um, they kind of they like mess with the truck. So that was something that we shot on a green screen and they, they comped it into our um, into the edit. Um, so those were the, the two things. It was a day of shooting and it was all done on green screen. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of like the look of, of the film or like how does the budget affect the photography? I mean, it affects it greatly in the sense that we just don't have a lot of time to do everything we want to be able to do. Um, because at the end of the day, it's just like how many shooting days do you have? We have 26 days. We have a lot of locations. So what that means, like you're likely moving locations every day. Um, I'm pretty sure that there was a company moving every single day. If, if not, maybe it was every other day. I mean, it was really an intense uh, shoot for us. We don't have big lights on set. We don't have a lot of lights on set. We certainly don't have a lot of crew. So when you have very little money, there's just like, there's just so much less you can do, but if you can lean into it and you just, you, you have to get excited by like the resources that you have and you have to fully utilize those, but you can't try and do more than that. Because if you start trying to do bigger lighting and bigger this or bigger that, then you slow yourself down and, and, and you shoot yourself in the foot. So you have to be really cautious and mindful of like the resources that you have. Um, so, but like the look, you know, the look of the movie, like we didn't have to, we didn't have to do a tremendous amount um, of lighting. And when we did, we had, we had airy sky panels. So you could choose whatever color you want. Um, and you just, be, you have to be, you know, clever about um, how you're lighting things with, with only a couple lights. And then uh, I guess, I guess that's, I mean, that's basically it. It's hard to say like how the budget affected the, the, the look of the movie. The really what the budget does it is it just, it affects the amount of time that you have to craft your shots. And, um, you know, you, the, you, we'd have to do seven pages a day, right? So normally uh, you might be doing four pages a day, three and a half pages a day, whatever it might be. Sure, some days you have a bigger day, but um, this was just like, go, 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 go. And so you don't often have time to do a lot of rehearsing, you know, a lot of the stuff that you saw in the movie was like, maybe it was the first take, you know, maybe it was the rehearsal take, where's bits and pieces, you know, because we just didn't have the time. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much that. So this is more of a, like an objective, like less personal question, but as a cinematographer, like what are your responsibilities in pre-production compared to while on set? Um, and do you, use like shot list sketches uh like what is your personal like preparation yeah. and also are you involved in post yeah so i'll i kind of like meld my pre-pro style toward whatever the director wants to do so if the director wants to sit down and pick every shot and write out a, a huge big document of shot lists we'll do that if the director says hey listen like i can't shot list until i see all the locations like well that's fine um so we'll try and see as many locations as possible in pre-production and um and then sketches are helpful like we'll definitely do sketches if we're trying to like communicate 
a certain camera movement and blocking because that's a hard thing to just talk about. So it's, it's best to have a, a notepad with you. And you draw um, those yourself yeah, you yeah, just stick figures. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. like really down and dirty, awful sketches, but it's enough to convey where the camera is and like where people are moving. And um, because it's so funny, because like I could, I could, I could speak to you right now about how I want to move a camera through a space and where the actors are standing, and and we all may nod in agreement. And when we get on set, the director's like, "Oh, I thought the camera was going to be over there," and then the actors are here, and you're like, "Oh my god, no! Like I, that's not how I set up the shot because I thought we meant this." And it's like. Well, it's, it's neither, it's no one's fault, but, but it, it really is the DP's job, I think, to communicate really clearly and to make sure that the director's understanding the concept and the approach. And it's also your job to, to really try and fully under, understand whatever it is that the director is articulating. You might think that you're understanding, but, but generally there's a lot of miscommunication and assumption that is made. And so it's just best if you guys can like sit down and sketch things out. Um, that's huge. Uh, the shot lists are useful, but they're more useful just as like a general uh, pl like plan that you sh you intend to break at some point. Like you don't have to get every single shot necessarily, and sometimes we even prioritize them in order the shots that we know we need to get. And um, and sometimes like if you're working in TV, like I'm doing a TV show right now, like we don't need to shot list every scene because it's going to be a, an establishing wide shot. It's going to be an over the shoulder, another over the shoulder, and then an insert of whatever it is they're talking about. And then you move on. And so you don't need to write down every single scene, but um, if it's something like a boots Riley movie, yeah, it's probably gonna have to get shot listed because there's so many specific camera moves and um, it, there's so much intention on where the camera is going to go and what it's looking at. And um it's also helpful just for a, a first time collaboration between a, a DP and director who never worked together. And then uh, the other component to prepping is just really looking at a lot of references. And I like looking at a lot of photography. I like looking at um, design and architecture books for lighting. I like looking at, um, at all sorts of different types of photography and then movies. But um, I have found that I, I don't really sit down and watch movies side by side with a director. I, I used to do that, but it's, it's time consuming. Most of these directors don't have a lot of time to do that. So what they might do is say, Hey Doug, you know, here are three or four movies I want you to go watch. And uh, there's a couple scenes in here I want you to check out and then I'll do that. And then maybe that, that will um, spark some memory of mine of a movie that I want the director to then watch. So I'll, I'll make sure that they see that. And so it's a little bit of like a fun, like exchange of um, ideas and concepts. Um, and then the visual like language of your movie evolves in pre-production, but it doesn't really fully evolve until you just start shooting. And then you start getting a sense of like people's taste and what they like, and what they don't like. Um, and that like, that comes down to like lens selection and, um, you know, you can, you can describe what a lens looks like to someone, a long lens or a wide lens or this or that, and you can show them images, but it's not until you get to set and you have it on the camera. Can a director really look at it and say, oh yeah, yeah, I like this or no, 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 that, that looks terrible. You know, let's change the lens. Let's try something else. Um, so I'm trying to think what else in pre-production. Um, I mean, I, I always say, and I think that a lot of people would agree with me that like most of the problems that you're going to encounter on set can be solved in pre-production. Um, and it's great to try and get ahead of any issues in advance. And usually that might be like a crew size thing. Like you might not have enough money for crew. So you need to like be smart about how you allocate that. Um, you might know that like one location requires a lot more people to set up um, a lot of lights, right? So you, you know to allocate more people for that day and then, and then you can steal from another day. Um, and uh, yeah, so then in terms of post-production, the DP is involved um, only to the extent that they're doing color grading. So that's like sitting in the DI theater and um, usually they'll give you like 
eight, 10 days of um, color grading with a colorist. And uh, that's, and, and then you, you're essentially grading for theatrical release and the colorists after you're done will then regrade it for uh, video and for streaming and uh, television. So is uh, the director there also when you're color grading? Yeah, it's ideal. Yeah, certainly. Um, they might not be there the whole time. Like a lot of movies you'll find they have to do color and sound mixing all at the same time because the release schedule, you just start getting crammed at the end. And so you'll find that they kind of bounce back and forth. And then I might not, I might not be there the whole time either. Like we might just set individual looks for every scene and then I leave and the colorist works on balancing every single shot and then we'll come back and rewatch the work that they did. And then we'll make independent, you know, adjustments here and there. And then at the very end, usually the process is like you set your color and you get the color right for every scene and for every shot. And then you can get, get into like the real, like the nitty gritty minutia of like put a power window over that person's face and brighten it a little bit, or that wall is a little bit too bright. So let's darken that wall. Let's add a vignette here. Okay. Now let's add some film grain overall. Like let's, what film grain do you like? How much, how little, um, a little bit of softening on actors faces if it needs it. So all that stuff you sort of save like the last day of color grading or two to do that. Um, and in more elaborate power windows, they could be done while you're not there because that stuff takes time for the colorist to do. So yeah, two weeks is generally kind of accepted for finishing a movie in post. Um, so you've worked in documentary and, uh, and on documentaries and in television as well. So how does uh, the different platforms sort of uh, change your process, if at all? It's a good question. I think, you know, a documentary, it, you generally need to be able to be much more, um, I guess like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You gotta, well, you're not going to have a lot of equipment. You're not going to have a lot of crew. So you have to be like really thoughtful about like, it forces you to think about your time of day. Like where are you shooting the interviews? You probably don't have a whole lot of control on like windows and lighting. So you want to be really clever and smart about like the path of the sun and is the room that you're in, you know, conducive and and is it going to look nice or will it be a problem? Um, and you're really just like, you, you might just be you and like one grip, you know, you and one electrician, maybe you get an AC f- for a couple of days. It really depends on what you're shooting, but yeah, for documentaries, um, you learn to like work with the natural light, which is a really cool, um, it's a cool challenge. And you end up being able to use that in your filmmaking, like when you're doing features and TV, um, like the, uh, the show that I'm starting right now, where we've been discussing doing a lot of, um, like using a lot of available light and, and trying to do less lighting with film lights. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of combination of both, but it's, it's, I'm trying to challenge myself much more than I normally would to use way less light. And it's also just because we're struggling to deal with, um, the fact that we just can't have as many crew members on set as we normally would. And, um, so, uh, we're trying to keep the lighting outside of, the houses and, and spaces that we're in and we're trying to do much more with just like flags and bounces and and trying to remove light where we need to remove light and this and that so it's like less equipment less people on set and, and i think that will that will lend itself to looking much more um organic and and kind of real um so yeah i, I don't know i think that'll be a, a challenge and so in, in terms of television like television and and TV and working on films is generally to me, it's all sort of the same approach. Um, the thing that I don't love about working on TV shows is, is that you have these like rotating directors that come in and do an episode and, and then leave. And um, you don't get to, you don't get to kind of like 
unpack this, the, the episodes or the uh, scripts as much as you would if you were working with a feature director and, and um, you just have less time to, to kind of, I don't know, maybe like lean into certain concepts and, and really explore stuff together. Um, and then also you're shooting more pages per day. So you need to just be really nimble and, and quick when you're, when you're doing television. Um, so, but you know, TV, like if you, if you can, if you get lucky and work on a TV show where there's just one or two directors, um, and in this instance, I'm working primarily with one director, um, who also wrote and is directing the show, you know, right, writing and, and acting in the show. And so that's kind of cool. So that feels much more like a, a film process to me. Um, so yeah, I, but in terms of photography, it's all the same equipment, this same size of crew. Um, and, and then you might be lucky to find a crew in television that's worked together for like, say like 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so those guys all have a shorthand. So then, and then you're like really taken care of because then they have a rigging crew and they, they can, um, they kind of like take care of a lot of stuff for you that you don't have to solve quite as many problems. Uh, they, they kind of anticipate that stuff, which is kind of cool. Um, that's been my experience in working in some bigger TV shows. So if you're allowed to disclose this information, what mm -hmm. is the show you're working on now and how else has uh, coronavirus affected uh, your ability to work as a man in the film industry? Uh, yeah. So the, the film that I'm working on right, or the TV show that I'm working on right now, is called on the verge and, um, it's, uh, I think it'll be on Netflix and it's coming out. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's a 12 part comedic series. And, um, and the way it's being affected right now is that we, we don't, we have like a limited amount of resources and, um, we don't have a studio that we can go and ask for more money. So we are, mm. um, spending more money on preventative measures because of COVID and so a lot of the budget's now allocated toward trying to keep people safe and mm -hmm. less of it will now go into, um, you know, being able to, to hire more crew and have um, maybe more shoot days or um, have more camera equipment. And so that's a challenge, you know, um, and you just, you got to roll with the punches. Like we're all happy and excited, I think, to get back to work. I haven't, I haven't worked in, since November. And so it's now, you know, the middle of August. And so it's, I had a baby or my wife had a baby in December and so we were doing the maternity, maternity leave thing and I was ready to go back to work in April or May and then all this happened. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to get back to work and I'm excited by this project. It's a really good script and um, some really talented cast members. And so um, I think that what we have to do though, like I was saying about Boots's movie, when, when you have some limited resources, you just need to learn to lean into it and you need to not, try and work outside of the realm of what's possible um, so that you can keep moving and be fluid. You want to be like a quick fluid machine. If you start trying to do too much, you'll slow it down. And, and honestly, as a DP, like I don't think it's really fair to the director to, to spend all this time lighting and setting up elaborate shots. And um, if you start eating into that time that they have for, to work with their actors, I think that's a shame because you're ultimately, I think it's to the disservice of, of the movie or the show that you're working on. If your actors don't have enough time to, to work. Um, I mean, who, 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 I don't know many people that want to go see a really beautifully lit movie. That's like horrific acting and horrific directing, but they spent all time lighting. Like it just doesn't, it's not conducive to your career as well. You know, like no one's going to go watch that movie if it's, um, if they can't, if, if the acting isn't any good. So, 
So yeah, just lean in, just gotta, you like, this is true for any budget that you're working on. It'll never be enough money. You'll never have enough time or money to do it the way you want to do it. But then like some of the, the most beautiful stuff you'll create will come out of um, your creative necessity to like overcome some challenges and, and you'll be surprised. And I think you'll be happy with that. And so it's all a process. So like, and, and I'm excited to learn. Like, so as a DP, like if I'm, if I'm trying something new and trying something a little bit different, uh, than I normally do, then that's exciting for me. And I feel like I'll continue to keep growing. And that's such, that's what's so cool and exciting about this career um, is that you can constantly reinvent yourself a little bit and you can continue to grow. And, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited by it. I'm, you know, at first when you start in pre-production, you're always a little bit frightened and you're, you're you, you, you don't quite know what it's going to look like just yet. And then you get onto set and you start shooting and then like second nature completely takes over and then you're good and then you're good to go. But it just, it takes a minute to get there. So just real quick, like what percent of like uh, crew members from like the before times, like are there like now, like how much have they consolidated and like how are they, like who are they doing away with? I don't know that they've they've done away with anyone. Um, I think we just have fewer people. So like the art department will have fewer people on set. Mm-hmm. My uh, my team will be smaller than it normally is in terms of how many electricians and grips you can have on set. And um, and, and and I'm sure that's true for a lot of the departments. Um, but but you know we'll do the best we can and. Um, it's slower. Everything will be slower. And, and I think that there's a little bit of like agitation for people having to wear masks for, you know, 12 hours a day and goggles and face shields. And um, there's certain ways that you can like enter and exit a set. People are expected to, to kind of move in, um, in a direction that is designed to prevent the spread of it, you know, the virus. So you might only be able to use one entrance and one exit and you have to go a certain way and you're supposed to stay six feet apart. And so, that's tough because on set, you know, you're usually you're used to whispering to people and you're used to like huddling over drawings and plans and getting close to each other. And um, so we're, we're going to have to kind of work against our, our second nature. It's 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 going to be intense. Yeah, it'll be really, really tough, I think. But hopefully we'll just um, we'll get used to it. And, and we know hopefully that this is not a permanent thing. So um, we're we're hoping that this all goes well. And I think we're hoping that the shoot will be successful so that we can show the industry that it can be done and it can be done safely and we can get people back to work. Um, just as a last question before we have to let you go, um, you worked on a great movie, The Edge of 17. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that experience was like. Yeah, that was cool. We, you know, I'm really happy. That, that's a great example of a film that, was written to be in Southern California. And then with the budgetarily, they realized that shooting in Vancouver would be their best bet and they would save more money with a tax incentive. And I think that was like the greatest thing that could have happened in that movie because totally, totally it looks so specific to that region. And I think that it matches the, the tone of the movie so, so well. Um, there's a kind of like a lot of, there's a little bit of like an overcast vibe to the film and, you, it always feels like it's just about to rain or has just rained. And so there's something kind of nice about that. I think that that story was suited for that environment. So that was kind of cool. That was not something when I read the script, I was expecting. And um, even when we were scouting every day and, and prepping, it was sunny and bright. And I kept thinking like, oh, I thought Vancouver was supposed to be rainy. And then I swear the day we started shooting and then for the rest of the shoot, it rained every day. Um, 
so that was kind of a, a cool um, surprise. And then, um, and then in terms of like the look of, of that, I think it's it's a, a very simple look, which I I really like. And I think that the camera work is is designed to just be very like presentational, and um, it's obviously told from the perspective of Nadine. Um, but there's yeah, there's something omniscient about the camera work, which I liked about that as well. Um, and then we just tried to make the lighting look nice um, and, and, and natural. I mean, everyone's got their own definition of natural, so I hate, I hate actually using that word because everyone just says, oh, I want natural light. Well, like natural light is different to everyone. Um, but there's something nice and unadorned about the look of the movie, which... which um, which wasn't necessarily even my first instinct on, on how to shoot it. And so I give the director, uh, Kelly, a lot of credit for, for coming up with the idea of that look. And, um, and it was nice to lean into that because I think that that wouldn't have necessarily been my first instinct. And so you kind of work against your instincts and, and sometimes that can lead to like, you know, that can be challenging uh, for collaborators. And, um, and I'm glad that, that Kelly had that concept because it, it really looks nice. And I think that it, the movie will also age well because it'll have some, sort of like a timeless vibe, just like the John Hughes movies have a timeless vibe. Um, if you went and caught like, you know, a, a brand new print, a new screening of, of a, a, you know, Breakfast Club um, or Home Alone, or you saw it on like new 4K, you know, new 4K scan, you'd be surprised because that stuff looks like it was shot yesterday. The photography is really uh, slick and timeless. And, um, I'm used to seeing all those movies on VHS on like really crappy old TVs. So like, to me, my memory of those movies is not what they actually look like. Um, so yeah. So anyway, that I'm kind of diverging there, but, um, I do want to say there's something kind of cool. People talk a lot about a colorist said this to me recently. Um, this colorist, this guy, Peter Doyle, um, he graded, uh, Harry Potter movies and he created some Coen brothers films and he created, um, Lord of the ring. So he's, you know, he's a big time colorist. And he said, people come in here always asking for a, you know, I want a really filmic look. Can you take my digital camera and make it filmic? You know, listen, I said the same thing to him, you know, it's like every, every filmmaker is going to say that. And, um, and he said, what people are actually asking for is not for it to look like film. They're asking for it to look like the memory that they have of film. And it's kind of, kind of a cool concept that I hadn't really considered because we all have our, our own perception and memory of what film really looks like. Um, so, so that, that was like, so what's fun today is that like the color grading process and the, the, the process of designing a LUT for your camera is like way more unique and personal to the filmmaker than, than it used to be, you know? Um, it's the look of cinema is like constantly evolving, which is kind of cool. And I think right now we're in a place where we're able to, um, be really unique uh, and, and, and create individual looks that um, we can evolve over our own careers. But um, it's no longer this thing where you just pick, you know, one of three or four film stocks, you know, and, and just lightly grade it by printer lights. That's how they used to do it when it was all um, done in film. And so you were really limited. And now, obviously, you guys know this, like, there's just like, there's an infinite amount of ways to, to manipulate your image to make it look however you want. So that's really exciting. And then also with like LED lighting, like that has changed the game for everyone lighting wise. And I think if you watch like music videos from the last 10 years and you watch 
films from the last 10 years, all of a sudden you're seeing this like a massive burst of color where, whereas there was never that much color used on set before, but because people can do it now they're doing it. And I have to wonder that if like, we'll look back at this period, like 10, 20, 30 years from now and be like, Oh, that's, that's so, uh, um, you know, it's so it feels so dated, you know, like we look, we look at the way that they would use the zoom lens back in the seventies and be like, Oh man, it's such a, dated look like no one uses zooms like that anymore but like that lens had just come out you know had just become the new hot thing so um yeah this evolution of film is interesting and exciting to me as well so i'm to wrap it up i'd say i'm excited to see what you guys end up with i'm curious to see what the next generation of filmmakers will do uh with with the new technology whatever that you guys have available to you well thank you Thank you. Yeah, that's a good closing note. So that's all the time we have. Thank you so much to our guest, Doug Emmett. He was the cinematographer on Sorry to Bother You, which is streaming on Hulu. You can find it there. And thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you again to our guest, Doug Emmett. He was absolutely swell. What a, uh, what a lovely man. We enjoyed having him, and what a great time. Uh, Part, did you enjoy the interview, or was that torture for you? I actually had a very good time. All right, just wanted to confirm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next week we'll be releasing the discussion portion. It'll be our thoughts. Uh, maybe we'll have a guest. Who knows? Maybe we won't, but maybe we will. Actually, I can confirm now that we... we Wait, actually, we will we have a guest? We don't know. We don't know. That's part of the that's, mystery, that, guys. That's why, I said, that's why I said we might or we might not, because I don't want to disappoint people. But, you know. Yeah, the here on Craft Services, expect the unexpected. Uh, there could be uh, several guests. There could be... Uh, or... Zero, there could be negative guests. We we might not even be there, you know. It might just be um several hours worth of white noise with um Is that just when you talk? With with Parth and I like fighting in the background. Um and you'll just hear like meat slapping together and you'll be like, Well, they're wrestling, but there's no visual component, so you probably wouldn't st- stick around for that long. Is that who who would just listen to the audio of a wrestling match? Would you, Parth? No comment. Well, that's enough of that. Uh, see you next week. Bye, fellas.